0: This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. This Monday, Labor Day, the 40th annual West Indian American Day Parade will dance and sing its way along Eastern Parkway in Brooklyn. If you've never been to the parade, you might not know that it's the city's largest cultural celebration. Up to four million people are expected on Monday. And that's no wonder, since there are more than half a million people of West Indian descent in the city. One of those people is WFUV producer Elisa Ali, who had this to say about one of the uh, important cultural differences between New York and her ancestral home of
1: Trinidad. Whereas in Trinidad, you know, mangoes are completely commonplace. People over here are like, ooh, mangoes, that's so exotic. And we will hear a little bit
0: more from Elisa later on the show. As today on Fordham Conversations, we will be talking about West Indians in New York City, specifically right here in the Bronx. While it's not as famously diverse as Queens, the Bronx is the arrival point or the ultimate home for many thousands of immigrants. They come from places like Albania, the Dominican Republic, Ghana, and as we'll talk about today, the West Indies. My guest on the show is Natasha Lightfoot. Lightfoot was born and raised in the Bronx, but her parents came here from Antigua in the West Indies. Today, she's a senior interviewer and researcher in the Bronx African-American History Project at Fordham's African-American Studies Department. I spoke to her in our studios about her work gathering the stories of Bronx West Indians.
2: Natasha Lightfoot, welcome. Oh, Thank you. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here.
0: <laughs> now, tell me the story of West Indians in the Bronx.
2: Um, Well, the story is kind of a couple of different stories. The earliest story is really about West Indians who migrated here in the early part of the 20th century, so between like 1900 and, you know, mid-1920s. And those folks came up by boat through Ellis Island, much like the other immigration narratives of people from Europe, Southern and Eastern Europe, etc. And they came through Ellis Island. A lot of them settled in different parts of Manhattan, first starting off in kind of the midtown west side area, kind of where Lincoln Center is now. That area was called San Juan Hill. And then ended up kind of getting progressively pushed out of that neighborhood. A lot of West Indians ended up in Harlem. And um, Harlem, you know, is kind of one of the, you know, capitals for the black presence in New York City. And then we had kind of over time a number of people who were in Harlem kind of getting into better, you know, economic classes, so to speak, and wanting to move on up, so to speak, a little bit. And so what they were looking for were better housing, better schools for the kids, and so they moved to the Bronx. And the Bronx was considered at the time a step on up. So a lot of the first Caribbean migrants to the Bronx were kind of people who had made pit stops along the way through Manhattan, up through Harlem, into neighborhoods of the South Bronx, principally Morrisania, but also Melrose and a couple of other areas, kind of, you know, definitely south of for- Fordham Road, just to get keep people, you know, kind of situated. So that's pretty much how the first story kind of starts. And then alongside that group of people who started off, you know, kind of as migrants from Manhattan into the Bronx, by the the mid-1960s, we start seeing another wave of immigrants. And these are the plane people as opposed to the boat people. And that's because, obviously, travel has revolutionized. Folks are coming up in much greater numbers as well because quotas have opened up again. Immigration quotas were contracted in the 20s as an effect of a national law, and that law was reversed in the mid-1960s. So a lot more people started to come in from a lot of different places, but the West Indies was one of them, and a lot of them came right back to New York. And a lot of people at this point migrated directly to the Bronx, as well as through Manhattan. They, you know, the presence of West Indians is very much concentrated within certain sections of the South Bronx, as well as the Northeast Bronx, um, you know, in the areas around Gun Hill Road, White Plains Road, Boston Road, that area is definitely filled with West Indians now. So it's been kind of a continuous migration over the, the course of the 20th century.
0: So who were the people who've emigrated in, in both of these ways of emigration?
2: Um, well, I would say that You know, the people who emigrated were people who were working class to middle class people. You definitely had to have a certain level of skill, education, and just sort of like ambition, you know, just personal ambition to even take that step to move yourself thousands of miles away from small islands that, you know, where you knew everyone and you kind of were really comfortable and the lifestyle was pretty laid back. But it's a degree of opportunity that people were seeking out why they left. Usually education, also obviously um, you know, economic opportunity because the United States was booming industrially at the beginning of the century and continued to do so pretty much over the course of the rest of the century for the most part. So definitely way more opportunities industrially than on many of these islands which were principally dedicated to the pr- production of sugar. Um, so These, you know, and certain other types of um, agricultural exports, bananas, etc. There's not very much to do if you're not of a certain class and you're not well connected. So the people who kind of felt themselves hitting a ceiling would, you know, take off and try to see what they could find elsewhere in the world. So, yeah, I would say definitely working to middle class people with some with some ambition. And the real focus was for the generation that they would produce in the States to do better than they did, which is the typical immigrant story in that sense.
0: Now, I have to ask this. I'm a little mm-hmm. bit embarrassed, but I'm not especially familiar with the West Indies or with the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. I know that you focus on English-speaking mm-hmm. islands in the Caribbean, but can you tell me where these people are from and what those places are like?
2: Okay. Um, well, I guess for people that don't know the history, the you know Caribbean is pretty much an outpost of europe For most of its history, it's been colonized and carved up between various European powers. And um, Britain was principally one of the major colonizing powers in the area. So, you know, Britain took over a number of islands and they become part of what is now known today as the West Indies. And usually West Indies as a term is used to refer specifically to English speaking islands that were formerly part of the British Empire. And just to familiarize people with where we're talking about, it's basically all the islands that are dotted kind of south of Florida, um, but north of the, you know, the northern coast of South America. So we're talking about to the east, you know, places like Puerto Rico, Cuba, the Dominican Republic and Haiti, Jamaica, you know, that area is where all of, you know, the Caribbean is principally situated. And it's like we're talking about probably a chain The British Caribbean chain of islands is probably about 10 to 15 islands at most. And a lot of them are really small. You know, for example, my family's from Antigua. Um, For most of the 19th century, the population never went above 40,000. And even now, today, the population is not above 75,000. There's probably as many people of Antiguan descent outside of Antigua as there are Antiguans on the island at this point. So the idea is these islands are self-contained posts of empire, so to speak, that really provided only but so much opportunity for the people that lived there. So, you know, if you're looking for a place where you could kind of maybe have a little bit more of a chance to not have such a circumscribed lifestyle, because the same people who were the heads of government were the people who, you know, were the richest people on the island and usually ran the sugar plantations and if you had a run in with the law then it, it probably affected your ability to excel economically and excel educationally excel you know in all different kinds of ways so it's sort of the way a small town would operate here in the united states so you kind of move to a big city to a, be- a place where you can you know be anonymous but have a clean slate and you know be able to progress in a way that's beneficial
0: the work you're doing is part of the Bronx African American history project Mm -hmm. Does this group fit in because they're primarily of African descent?
2: Yes, that's pretty much the focus. The idea of the project is just to be able to um, trace the ways in which a black community came to be in the borough. And the first place to start would be with migration stories. We're looking at a number of different groups, African-Americans who came from the U.S. South and African-Americans who were, you know, settled in the North and ended up in New York City, as well as west indians coming from island to mainland and also recently we've um expanded to explore the history of um west african migration to the borough which has been happening over the last like 15 or so years so it's you know really about trying to figure out all the different paths that people took to the bronx and the way in which they created a culture a very hybrid culture where there's a kind of a obvious allegiance to their homeland all the various homelands that people came from but an innovation as well on tradition because they're now in this new place this new urban space and they're meeting other groups as well when they get there like you know Italians and Irish people and German people all kinds of people who were still in the Bronx um, during the earlier part of the century and to some degree are still here in certain pockets so what kinds of moments of interaction and even tension result from people settling these neighborhoods and literally living on top of each other in tenement buildings uh, for the most part and later on in housing projects because that's a very prominent part of the story as well, the kind of development of housing projects and the choices that people made about where to live. So my um, role in the project is to kind of question this migration story for Caribbean immigrants. But what I would say too is that it's a really interesting What's really interesting is that stories often overlap. So a story might not just be a person who has a West Indian mother and an African-American father or, you know, might have grown up in in a West Indian household but had friends who were all Puerto Rican. You'll see stories of both cultural allegiance to, you know, and strong ties to the islands that people came from as well as a kind of hybridization, if that's even a word, just, you know, is the best way to describe it, of their culture because of all the other elements that they meet when they come to settle the Bronx.
0: You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. My guest this week on the show is Natasha Lightfoot. Lightfoot's a senior interviewer and researcher with the Bronx African American History Project, and her focus is on Bronx residents of West Indian descent. A little later on the show, we'll hear from one Bronx native of West Indian descent, WFUV producer Alisa Ali. She'll be piping up during the interview, and later we'll hear more about her and her family's experiences. But first, let's continue our conversation with Natasha Lightfoot. Now, you spend a lot of your time interviewing people from the West Indies who now live in the Bronx about Mm -hmm. their lives. What kinds of stories do they tell?
2: Um, They tell a lot of stories about what were their first impressions when they got here, kind of cultural shock that they experienced, certain prejudices that they had about life in the Bronx and about the people they were going to meet. What kind of prejudices? Um, For example, I interviewed my godmother, And uh, she is now living in the Northeast Bronx around the White Plains Road area. She says that she came here first wanting to be a teacher and was told by an older cousin of hers who would come here earlier on that she should never want to do that because the kids in America are just really unruly. They don't have the same kind of respect.
1: Something that my family always comments about when they come over here is that people, they had no respect. Like, they think that people in Trinidad are much more respectful, but people here in America are very disrespectful. And they have, you know, a lot of women who wear very short dresses and, you know, who talk back to their, to their men and things like that. So that's one of the things that they noticed. One, two,
0: one, two, three, ah! Uh.
2: I interviewed another woman who was from St. Vincent, and she talks about coming here in, you know, the 1970s when soul music was big and James Brown was singing about hot pants. So she said she had to go out and get a pair of hot pants and wear her hair in an afro, you know, coming from, again, the kind of culture of the West Indies definitely in the 50s, 60s, was very conservative at that point. So I don't think women were wearing, even though it was hot out, I don't think any woman would have been caught dead in a pair of hot pants. But she came up here and figured, well, it's time for me to get with the times, you know. So <laughs> hot pants it was, you know. So hearing about little moments of either people figuring out that there are ways in which they can change with the cultural Um, you know, standards of the place that they've now newly become acquainted with or sometimes a kind of vigorous holding on to what they came from because they're you know, trying to make sure that they don't lose a certain sense of their identity I can tell you a lot of the West Indians we interviewed as well would talk about their prejudices against African Americans in particular a lot of the West Indians who came here express a kind of um, you know assumption that they had about African-Americans being um, lazy and not wanting to work and not being the kinds of, you know, wanting to keep their kids away from African-American kids because they thought that that kind of negative attitude that they assumed that African-Americans had would rub off onto their own children. And I can tell you this, I've seen it in, expressed in my own family and in other people's families as well. People who I've interviewed and even people who i just known personally, I've heard them say say something along the lines of this sentiment. You know, some of that is obviously because of, you know, mainstream white America's own perception of African Americans in the mid-century. In the mid-20th century, obviously, we know things like civil rights was going on. And, you know, it was a very tense moment racially in this country. And so some of, you know, West Indians walking into that kind of took on, I think, some of the negative stereotypes circulating about African Americans and in that sense might have kept themselves shielded but i think over time you know what comes out in these interviews is that people had to interact with african americans and came to completely different understandings of who these people were as they had to live in the same neighborhoods and work at the same jobs etc go to the same schools as them so it's a very it's a very interesting thing on the flip side african americans might talk about feeling like West Indians were coming in to take away their jobs and take away their resources. And it becomes sort of, again, that process of unlearning those assumptions that becomes a subtler part of the stories that we hear. Um, So I think that's a really important part of the history of immigration in the United States. It's about a history of competition between new arrivals and older communities that they've come to meet, you know.
0: Did you find that people had a lot of similar experiences about, you know, finding work and interacting with different people in the city and stuff?
2: Um, yeah, I would say that it's a lot of similar experiences in that people were using their networks. So if someone someone came here, they usually came here to stay with a family member or a family friend. And that person might know a person who might put them in touch with the possibility of work in one arena or another. For example, a lot of West Indian women found their way into service industries like nursing. There are a lot of West Indian educators in the Bronx, too. I found that people kind of ended up going with professions that they had already had some kind of inroad into. So it's sort of like there's never one formula, but you know it's definitely a lot about networking and using the people who you know that are already here if not people from your own island, from other islands.
0: Now, you became part of this project uh, initially because you and your sister were interviewed for it. What kinds of stories did you and your sister tell?
2: Oh, um, (laughs) you know, little things like growing up, hearing certain parables, you know, or certain sayings that were kind of like folk wisdom, so to speak, about how to, you know, conduct yourself. Um, (laughs) So, like, for example... Um, I'm trying to think of one thing that my mom would say often. She would say something like, <laughs> When ram goat marry, they get their tail cut, which means when you have too much fun, like the ram goat's having fun, he's merry, something bad might happen. So you should have fun in moderation. he, The ram goat was merry and he got his tail cut. It sounds random, but it was something we heard every day or Wait, every other day. that a specific ram goat or just any? No, any.
1: <laughs> any ram goat. My mother used to say to me all the time when I was younger, she would say, you study Lyman and you ain't finish your homework. Or you ain't finish your homework because you study Lyman. Lyman means fooling around, so that's why I didn't finish my homework. Another thing she would tell me, when you know she said I wasn't sitting like a lady, you know she would tell me how you skin up so, how you skin up your legs so. Another thing she would um, she would say or just comment about other people, oh how she gets so maga maga, and that basically means that she's very thin. Like maga is thin. Um, and another a, a threat that she used to tell me, she used to give me whenever I wasn't doing anything right was I will give you one hard lash. And obviously that would just mean she's gonna beat me up, but she didn't. Um, but she's she's uh, full of threats.
2: We talked a little bit about just um, you know how our parents always socialized with other Antigans. So a lot of the time when we were at home, we we were always hearing about Antigua. They were talking about political change there or different things that were happening. They were always in contact with Antigua by the phone by sending back money and other types of resources that we had here that you couldn't get there that was always a big part of our upbringing and then also every summer we got shipped back to Antigua (laughs) you know when we wanted to go to Disneyland and do all the kinds of stuff that our friends were doing we instead were told no you got to go back and you know know your family and know your culture and so we had to go back to Antigua every summer and now we go back every summer just because we want to as adults um because we were so it was so, you know, kind of ingrained in us as a kid.
0: This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV ninety point seven and WFUV dot org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Just ahead this morning on WFUV, it's Cityscape. On today's show, a glimpse into the history of some of New York City's most interesting bars. That's Cityscape with George Bodarchy this morning at seven thirty. This morning on Fordham Conversations, we are talking with Natasha Lightfoot of the Bronx African American History Project. We're talking with her about the West Indian community in the Bronx in advance of this Monday's West Indian American Day Parade in Brooklyn. We'll hear more from West Indian Bronx native Elisa Ali in a moment. But first, let's hear the rest of my conversation with Natasha Lightfoot. I asked Lightfoot why oral history is worth doing and why it's worth doing in the Bronx.
2: Um, Well... Why oral history is worth doing is largely because the people who write and usually have access to, you know, depositing their stories in an archive, especially the further back you go, are usually not the ordinary people of history. The people who are the movers and shakers, usually you find at the levels of government or people who are of an upper economic echelon or, you know, people who have certain types of connections will actually have the privilege to chronicle their experiences historically, and those tend to be what is archived. And so you will get a certain sense of history through that set of documents, but the documents don't tell everyone's story because it's only about what, you know, each person who gets the privilege to even write their experiences down is only going to have a certain perspective on the passage of time that they experienced. And that doesn't always necessarily include attention to ordinary people who might slip through the cracks, so to speak. They might be talked about, maybe referenced in passing, but their stories are never told in detail. So oral history becomes a way in which you can shake up what exists in archives by introducing a story that has heretofore been untold. And I would say that this is doubly important when you start thinking about a place like the Bronx, a place like the Bronx has been often associated with urban decay, <laughs> crime, drugs, you know, to be able to to talk about the Bronx in a way that obviously is in tune to all of these different themes because it's a serious situation that a lot of people experienced in their own ways. But it's also interesting to see how people were able to create community in spite of all of that was going on and being able to have a sense of a different kind of a Bronx. I think this project is absolutely important for recovering the untold stories that are off the beaten path of what is conventionally known about the Bronx. But then also, I think, when you're talking about the way that, black New York is understood. You know, people always see the center of black culture and black settlement in New York as two places, Harlem and Brooklyn. And the Bronx is filled with more than half a million people of African descent. And that's a significant number of people. And it's representative of a lot of different parts of the African diaspora, a lot of different people of, you know, from all these different places that we already talked about that really ought to be represented in the historical record in a way that shows that, you know, the Bronx is an important center for black cultural production, black political production, black religious expression, black community formation that has gone unrecorded. I've heard sort of popular memory of the Bronx described
0: as sort of skipping from uh, stickball in the 40s to insurance fires in the 80s and
2: then stopping. Are you trying to fill in some of those holes? (laughs) Yeah, that's definitely the point it's about a sense that, yeah, the Bronx did have an idyllic time. And yes, there was a moment, you know, fast forward a couple of decades where nobody felt safe to do anything in the streets at certain points. But there's a consistent story of hardworking people doing really interesting things.
0: Why should people who aren't specifically interested in or invested in the Bronx care about this?
2: Really, it's important to understand as part of American history. Even if you don't necessarily, if you're not invested in the Bronx particularly, it's still a microcosm of what the larger story of this country is. There really is no one native to the United States besides Native Americans. Everybody here came from somewhere. So to be able to understand how different groups of people came together and, you know, at times competed, at times collaborated, at times mixed, literally, into families, communities. How does that happen? And how do you understand what community is? I think that's a lesson that anybody could take from these interviews and take with them anywhere. So, you know, definitely it doesn't just have to take an affinity for the Bronx for someone to be interested and learn from what we're, what we're gathering.
0: Well, Natasha Lightfoot, thanks so much.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: That was Natasha Lightfoot. She is a senior interviewer and researcher with the Bronx African American History Project. If you'd like to know more about that project, or if you have a story you'd like to tell, their website is Fordham.edu slash B-A-A-H-P. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. We will close the show today with one more West Indian in the Bronx story. WFUV producer Elisa Ali took a moment away from her audio editing program, and that's a rare thing, to tell us some stories about her family's experiences.
2: Oh, look at that now.
1: My family started immigrating to New York from Trinidad back in the 70s. The first person to come over was my dad. He came over because they were all living with my my dad's mom in a house and they when I say they it was my father, my mother and my three siblings. So they were all staying in this really cramped place and it was really hard for them to, you know, I guess make ends meet, so they decided to come to New York to make a better life for my family. So my dad immigrated to New York first and then he began slowly bringing over the rest of the family. After that, then my mother started bringing over the rest of her family and so forth until we're all here and we all pretty much still live in the Bronx. The story of my family coming to the Bronx from Trinidad is actually kind of biblical. It's very Jacob begat Joseph, Abraham begat Isaac, you know, because to hear them say it, you know, they would say something like, well, Boise bring your wife Zora, and Zora bring she sister Ina, and Ina bring she husband Broadway. I was the first person in my family to be born in New York. So I was totally used to everybody in my family speaking with these very, very thick accents and it didn't faze me. Like one time, my one of my friends from high school came over and they said, my God, your parents have such a thick accent. And I was like, what are you talking about? They don't have an accent at all. One time I went to the airport, I was at the airport with one of my friends and we are trying to figure out what gate to go to and um, it seems like these days my people, we got a lockdown on the airport, we got a lot of our people, our islanders working there. I asked one of the guys, you know, where how do I get to this gate? And he proceeds to give me directions in detail about, you know, where I go and how I, you know, what I need to bring and so forth. And then afterwards, my friend was like, "What language was he speaking? How did you understand that?" I was like, "What are you talking about? What language was he speaking? He was speaking English." I actually never really realized how many Trinities there were in New York City until I went to the West Indian Day parade on Eastern Parkway. It seemed like every other truck in the parade is from Trinidad. And it really makes you feel good when you see all those flags waving because you're like, yeah, those are my people, you know? And you feel like you really belong.
0: From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. More information about the West Indian American Day Parade is at the West Indian American Day Carnival Association's website, wiadca.com. You can subscribe to our show as a podcast, or you can listen to it online in our audio archives at our website, wfuv.org. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can drop us an email. Our address is Fordham Conversations at wfuv.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend and have a fabulous Labor Day holiday.
2: From the start, you could see the girl of the year. We can so and
0: we still bang. Man she really love the jam session. Quietly, the girl said to me, Shorty, what a glorious symphony.
2: The music seems to fill you with rage and make you feel like you want to stay. Oh what an
0: artistic excitement moment of history I got up a... This is wfuv 90.7 and WFVB.org Oh how she get so maga maga